Hi, and welcome to a special episode of What I'm Obsessed With Now, with your friendly host and obsessive, Byron. Today we are lucky to be joined by Jamie Leonardo to discuss UFOs and aliens. Jamie is the Vice President of UFO Research New South Wales. Alongside his UFO research, he is a TV star, musician, and has a ton of content online to dive into. He really is a fascinating guy and thoughtful in his approach to UFOs and life. I'd recommend a Google and get to know Jamie a bit better. It's probably clear that I enjoyed our conversation and I hope to have another in the future. I think you'll find this interview enlightening. So let's get started with how Jamie got into the field. Well, it's fast and varied, Byron. I'm 62 years of age, and today, at this time, I'm the Vice President of UFO Research New South Wales, which has been running since the early 90s, set up by Maura McGee and Brian Dickinson. I was involved actively in that group in the early 90s, but if you go back on my timeline, I had an incident that was vaguely similar without much documentation or other collaboration when I was at school. And it was in my primary school, so I must have been somewhere between eight and ten years of age. And it was very similar to the Westall case, although no objects landed in the school. We had an object hovering over the adjacent football field, and it was a real conundrum. I can distinctly remember for our teachers at that time. And I think that what that did was made me question the validity of consensus reality. And when I first started to go towards the literature in my teenage years, I was shocked and amazed and incredibly surprised of the amount of credentialed investigators that some of them had stepped directly out of the military and civilian air traffic uh, work of pilots, air mm. traffic controllers. And I thought, well, if there's nothing to this subject matter, why are so many credentialed moths drawn to this flame? So there must be something distinctly here. And then, of course, like the majority of us drawn to the subject matter, I found out about J. Allen Hynek, the astrophysicist employed for well over a decade to literally debunk the topic on behalf of the U.S. military-industrial complex, probably quite possibly initially the Air Force, and realizing that when he came to the end of Project Blue Book in the late 60s, he literally did a double somersault backflip and uh, started to realize that there was a reality to this, a reality that was very difficult to define in three-dimensional reality-based terms, but a ra- reality was there indeed. And I've always, uh, you know, the line that you used before about skepticism, if only the skeptics would stick to the concise Oxford Dictionary's definition of skepticism, I'd be more than happy to bring as many skeptics on board as we can find. But they should be able to balance scientific reductionism up against the plethora, the literally hundreds of thousands to millions of eyewitness reports that exist today. And once you balance it against the data, and some of these are some of the most trained 
uh, eyewitnesses in the world. And if we go to this footage that has just been released and the ownership has been claimed out of the US Navy to do with the Nimitz in 2004, when you've got fighter pilots, super Hornet fighter pilots, you don't get better trained observers than that. Absolutely. And if they were hallucinating, what a danger to national security and billions <laughs> of dollars of a defence budget they would be. So we have to stop and realise that, you know, if we're going to keep fighting about the validity of this subject matter, then we're going to get nowhere. The only way we're going to get somewhere is to actually marry the two, marry the eyewitness reports and the investigators out there in the field with the scientific community mm -hmm. and the psychological community and even the psychiatric community needs to step in. So I think it was just really, you know, that incident I had at school going towards the literature, realizing that there's a lot of noise attached to the signal. This has become a bit of a cliche, Byron. 90% of it's noise, but 10% mm -hmm. of it is a very clear, defined signal that we have a genuine phenomenon here. It's interesting in, in speaking with people who are interested in UFOs and extraterrestrial life, I was very much surprised in my research at the, the level-headedness and um, the way people went about it. It's really interesting that um, the UFO field has this um, almost scientific um, approach to it. You know, it's not just within Australia, it's worldwide. It's been there from day one. And what we're looking at is a lot of corruption through the zeitgeist of consensus reality. Mm. And that's the no that's the 90% of the noise brought to bear. It is a subject that's been heavily exploited, particularly in the 20th century when it got into the mass mind thing from 1947. I really think it was Kenneth Arnold's sighting at Mount Rainier. And again, you know, let's look at that sighting, which really piqued the public's curiosity about the subject matter. And then you had a trained pilot that was going on a search and rescue mission. And what he observed was actually misinterpreted off the bat by the journalist transcribing his story. And once it got out to the greater community of Reuters, we were dealing with a subject that was termed the flying saucer phenomena. What Kenneth Arnold saw was never flying saucers. So it's a classic quintessential example of just how the media will warp the whole notion of this. Mm -hmm. He said they were like saucers or stones that had been skipped across the water. That's the way that they were oscillating. But they were basically like a arc, a chevron in the sky. And he not just saw one, he saw nearly a dozen of these things. And he was also, because of his aviation background, he was able to clock these things at speeds that were literally impossible to any terrestrial craft. They're also glittering in the sunlight. It was a daylight observation. And at that stage, I think that we initially had only just started using radar. We were in a, a very dangerous uh, evolutionary stage with radar. I think they were burning flocks of birds out of the sky, left, right, and center. But that radar started to detect a whole series of ubiquitous anomalies worldwide. And I think that that's when it, when it sort of popped into the mass mindset that there is no way that we can eradicate the observation of these objects. There has to be something genuine here. Getting back to um, Terra Australis in mm -hmm. terms of, I mean, really going back to the 20th century, 
we started off and still have some remarkably scientifically based researchers. Now, I'll give you one of them. Bill Chalker has written the Oz Files and Hair of the Alien about the Peter Curry abduction case here out of Sydney. Um, he's an industrial chemist, and he's able to take that multidisciplinary science. He's also a science and mathematics graduate, a PhD. He's able to take that into the field and use things like thermoluminescence when he's looking at cases where objects might have touched down or affected the environment they're involved in. Roger Stankovich, who is the MUFON field director for Australia and New Zealand, has a background in forensic pathology. I mean, these are not just Joe Blow off the streets. These are people that are highly credentialed and use scientific peer review reductionism in terms of investigating these cases. And, uh, you know, I think it's always been that way. Stanton Freeman, who only died recently, who was linked to one of the first people to bring the Roswell case to the public's attention in 1980, Byron, he was a nuclear physicist. So, I mean, and we can just start going through a list. It's yeah, endless. One, one of my uh, people that I'm incredibly fascinated and who was out here in the mid-60s on behalf of the CSIRO, looking early at the ionosphere over Australia, was James E. McDonald. Now, if you go and look up James E. McDonald, his archive still exists. There is no one that has brought more science to bear on that subject and believed it to be an actuality than he has. And he had a short life. Uh, died in 1971, but prior to that event, he spent time looking at cases worldwide. There's also the aviation specialist, Dr. Richard Haynes, who made it a job to only actually review cases to do with civilian and military pilots. And again, as I stated before, the best observers on the planet. And he accumulated literally thousands of those cases that are very difficult to debunk. So, oddly enough, you know, that was one of the things when I was a teenager where I went, let's have a look at the board of these civilian UFO groups in the States like APRO. And then I started to realize that there were people out of the US military, even out of the Central Intelligence Agency, that were sitting on the board of these research associations. If this was a hokey phenomenon, why would someone risk their credibility and uh, to go to something that was pure missile? So that said to me that, you know, literally two and two equals four. If these people are drawn to the subject matter, well, there's distinctly a real phenomenon. And then when we even come to the tales that are seen by the public, it's incredibly you know, exotic and, and basically very difficult to swallow your abduction tales. Well, I mean, we had one of the highest credentialed psychiatrists in the world, John Mack out of Harvard, who wrote two exhaustive books saying we're not looking at a mental aberration. Mm. One thing I didn't extrapolate on was when I first left school, I was drawn to music and the creative arts, but I was also drawn to nursing, and I trained as a nurse at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, and I worked extensively with the mentally ill, and I actually had a band of musicians that all suffered on the spectrum from bipolar disorder to schizophrenia, and so I have a good background in terms of assessing whether we're dealing with some form of mental aberration, 
especially when it comes to the abduction tales, or we're dealing with something absolutely genuine. And what I see nine times out of ten, although there is psychological damage trying to integrate these stories into everyday life, is that I will see manifesting signs of post-traumatic stress disorder around people that show no signs of bipolar disorder, no mm. schizophrenia. And you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, you literally have to be taken out of your environment, your notion of reality collapse in front of you to show signs of that. If the return soldiers show that all the time. So, I mean, there you are. We've, we've quickly spared the entire uh, <laughs> sort of gamut of like psychological issues and tactile scientific issues. And I think, you know, that in itself, that speaks volumes. Absolutely. I think um, you raise a good point in terms of looking at post-traumatic stress disorder in, in these instances. And I think that that points to something happening that is real. The skeptic side of me says something could have happened that caused that reaction. It doesn't necessarily have to be extraterrestrial. But taking the, the line and, and kind of thinking through, if, if people were to experience extraterrestrial um, life, you would expect to see a, a huge number of those experiencing post-traumatic stress, because as you say, it is very much outside of normal life. And um, particularly if you're being taken away, that kind of loss of control would be quite confronting. So it's a very interesting, I'm, I'm very interested in psychology as well. I've, I've studied and um, have a degree in psychology. So I'm, I'm very interested in that human side of these experiences. We can certainly utilize your skill. And the more psychologists and psychiatrists and even GPs, you know, in the early 90s, we had a GP who was having similar experiences himself attached. One of the reasons I went back to UFO research, which was only a couple of years ago with my wife, who was initially involved in the committee as well, is that it's not for us to investigate and find some answer. I think we're dealing with an extremely complex phenomena, maybe a series of multiple phenomena that's outside of our comprehension, but is to remove the ridicule to let the narratives breathe freely. Now, you are not going to get post-traumatic stress disorder from a nightmare, a delusion, or an hallucination on a psychoactive drug. The way you're going to get it is that something that is so far removed from your everyday life all of a sudden impinges on it. Hence, the horror of battle for returned soldiers. I mean, in the, in the 20th century, we articulated this as shell shock is one of the reasons why you see post-traumatic stress disorder. But, you know, it's also, we all know about memory and its attachment to our mental recall. And primarily, memory is mounted around highly charged emotional events. I still take phone calls on a weekly basis from people who had incidents 30, 40, 50 years ago and have been afraid to articulate yeah. the stories. The clarity that they speak to me about an incident that may have only lasted 60 seconds is extraordinary and just shows you how emotionally charged the event was. When we go back in history, a classic example is when the Spanish came to invade you know, South America. And you've got the uh, 
Incas there that just didn't even see the boats that were lording off the troops. And that's because it was not something that happened, has never happened before. It was such an abnormality that visually it didn't even go into the cortex. The image was there, but mentally it did not register. The so brain, I don't see, the, yeah, I don't want. I, I don't really want to come to any conclusion anymore. It's not a question of belief for me anymore. Mm-hmm. It's a question of knowing that we have this phenomenon, and my greatest um, plan is to deconstruct the ridicule around it and make sure that these narratives and these stories are told and people are directed to where they need to necessarily help or the comfort in realizing they're not the only ones that have experienced that experience. I think that's a that's a fantastic um, goal to have because um, it does remove the uh, people's idea that, that you're searching out or you're starting out with the, with the premise in mind. But I think it's also, regardless of if these experiences are genuine or not, and I'm sure there are there are non-genuine experiences that that um, come you come across as well. The person at the other end of uh, that experience is is um, often suffering with something, and to to just turn a blind eye and and ridicule that person, I think, is quite heartless. Um, particularly if you think this person is seeing things and has a mental disorder, we should be we should be giving them more help, not less. There's a huge paradox in our, in our culture. I mean, organized religion, you know, is able to get away with blue murder based on what evidence is throughout the world. It's literally a, a huge tax haven. And, uh, you know, there is a church in every suburb of the West. Yeah. And, and here we are <laughs> where people articulate these stories. You know, the other thing we've got to be careful of here is I avoid the word alien. I avoid the word extraterrestrial. The jury is certainly not in. And uh, this may have nothing about flying in on a rectilinear path from another, another star system. We've got no idea. I mean, there is great evidence to support at times that we are seeing some technology that is way beyond our notion of what technology should be, and that technology seems to exhibit what we can only define as magical elements. And then at other times, there are lots of aspects to it that could fall into the realm of the paranormal. Uh, You know, rogue sort of writers like John Keel, who gave us the Mothman prophecy, made us realize on a broader spectrum, and Jacques Vallée came later, the physicist that um, we see Francois Truffaut, uh, the director in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, portraying on Mm. the screen, who was a colleague of Heineck's. They both realized that there was, if you'd seen a UFO, then there may be a whole other plethora of anomalous phenomena that you're experiencing in your life as well. It's not just the sighting of that craft or experience entities of that craft. So I think we're looking at an incredibly complex, uh, you know, broad range of phenomena. It's funny you bring up the the religion um, element because I think there is some parallels there between the idea that that we should take people's experiences at not at face value, but we we should be you know engage and be open minded to that. Popping back a bit to to your experience, and you said you you saw you had an experience while you were at school. Um, were there other witnesses there as well? 
There were other witnesses, and as the years went by, there was only one person which was many, many decades uh, ago that I was able to speak about. And I've never gone back and done any, you know, concerned research about that. It certainly doesn't have the weight of the case Westall 66. And if people don't know about that case in the Melbourne School of Westall in 1966, literally hundreds of eyewitnesses and hundreds of eyewitnesses to this day stand by what they saw. And uh, it's well worth going up on YouTube and checking out that documentary. It's a brilliantly done documentary. And uh, Shane, who bookends that and tells the story, tells it from a father's perspective, is quite astounding. Anyone on my timeline, which was a baby boomer, Byron, you're a youngster in that regard, <laughs> will be fascinated by the documentary in a sense because it yeah. sort of brings together all those feelings of like being in the schoolyard. They had a very similar incident to what I had. We just, for the length of the lunchtime, I stood on a paling fence. I stood on the bottom bead and literally with a hundred other kids watched this object hover over the adjacent football field. We were told later on in the afternoon, I think it was my science teacher that said it was probably a weather balloon. I said, do they bring weather balloons down that low? And what weather balloon seems to have sort of like light and windows in it? So as much as the teachers, and they had the same problem with the science teachers at Westall. At Westall, they had objects land. There was the difference. And people actually went and touched objects hovering. There's something about children, and it reminds me so much of uh, the case that hopefully we're going to see what's left of John Mack's documentation that happened in South Africa in the late 80s, which was another case in schools. And I think last year, I, I couldn't tell you the name of the author, but there has been a piece of literature about documenting cases that have occurred in schools, and it's collected well over 100 cases worldwide. Uh, no, you know, the pity is that I didn't do any extensive research at that time. I sort of accepted it until a couple of years later, I went back and started to read the literature and went, my God, there could have been something to that. Yeah. And it certainly stayed with me and pushed me to start looking into the fringes of culture. Something that I've found in my research and speaking with people is a lot of, um, a lot of people have these experiences when they're either younger um, so kids or when they're teenagers, do you think there's a, there's a link there or do you, or is that just a, a coincidence, um, and people are younger and more open? You've hit, you've hit close to the reality there. And when it comes I guess the best way to talk about this primarily is people have come forward with abduction scenarios, these complex scenarios where they're removed from their room or their car or an environment have missing time and they believe they've been on board a structured object. And uh, they seem to show that if they've had experiences, that those experiences probably go back to their early remembrance in childhood and they go back even further. They go back to their parents and their grandparents. There seems to be some genetic connection to that. And the only reason I say that is it is consistent worldwide in the research data, that there seems to be some genealogy aspect to it. Maybe if they're seeing something in their teenage years, if they decide to go to a reputable uh, 
hypnotist to do regression to recover memory, they will find that that memory in their teenage years is actually linked to much earlier memories. I did a program for the ABC that we have on the UFO art side. I've digitized it. It's an hour and a half radio documentary called To Catch a Flying Star. And I extensively went through the ABC archives searching for old news reports. It's so fascinating. The antiquarian nature of this phenomenon <laughs> has always been there in the media in somewhere or another. Yeah. Like all archives, it's very scratchy. And when it comes to the anomalous phenomena, no one bothered to catalog things the way that they should have. But I did come across some reports about the Southern Aurora train a train guard that actually used to have missing time. They'd have to stop the train. This train also encountered what has been termed and dates back thousands of years in indigenous culture in Australia called the Min Min Light, which can be anything from a small phosphorescent ball to a UFO sighting of a solid disc. And these lights would come around the train and this, this gentleman would basically they thought he'd fallen off the train. And then an hour he'd appear back with no memory of what had occurred to him. When that person was interviewed, there were experiences that person related to with their grandparents, very similar experiences. So I just always feel that, you know, going back in antiquity, you know, that uh, there is a genealogical aspect to this. So if your parents have had an experience, maybe you're going to have one as well, and maybe your children are going to have one. I don't want to scare people in that regard, but that's the consistency in the research on a worldwide basis. That's fascinating that there's some link across generations. Um, I know a lot of uh, TV shows and, and movies have, have kind of investigated that as an idea, um, but it does point to um, something that that has technology beyond what we we would know. Uh, you know, we've just uh, been able to to get DNA relatively recently, and it sounds like these, you know, if if true, these these beings are able to to look at um, look at that in a in a much more advanced way. So, really fascinating. Um, you know, what we're doing there is we both, you know, you're falling into the world of assumption too. These yes, things are looking yeah. at, but most researchers will go to running off the back of that consistency in these worldwide cases will say, well, let's have a look. Let's lay the template for the way that we track animals in the wild. And there's something very similar to that. I mean, I've gone out, I I spent quite an extensive amount of time in the 90s on the Nullarbor, and I was hard-pressed to find really tenacious, pragmatic Australians that deal and work very hard on a daily basis out there in some of the roughest, toughest land on this continent that hadn't had a sighting. And one thing mm-hmm. I came across was a multiplicity of cases, the myriad, especially the research that's come out of the States through Linda Moulton Howe on the cattle mutilation phenomena and its link to this phenomena as well. And I don't know if you're aware of that, but that's when they find the blood all drained from an animal. There doesn't seem to be any predator marks around them. They seem to have been picked up and dropped back into actuality. I was finding sheep and kangaroos and property owners that were quite disturbed by that. And, you know, again, there seems to be some aspect in there. I mean, if, if we were to assume things, 
in terms of our infancy in science. If you want to measure the pollution, the background radiation, then the best way is to look at the lower bowel on a bovine. And, you know, they have this thing where they just keep consistently, was there with the kangaroos and the sheep. Uh, they have the rectum seems to be cored out at some point and um, it seems to have been done with a laser. But if you want to measure, you know, the pollution and the danger that's occurring in the environment, then that's one way to do it. You would go to the soft organs where that radioactivity collects. And I think that maybe, you know, the number of reports that accelerated when we split the atom, and here's another assumption, might have been, I mean, Stanton Friedman used to use this this cliche all the time. He said it was as if when we split the atom that some higher consciousness had gone, oh, my God, the children have found the matchbox. If we were being tracked and studied, it makes sense. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point. Um, I've I've not heard and and kind of not put the pieces together that um, if you were trying to to understand uh, background radiation that, that that could be a potential reason why um, the animal mutilations happen as they do, um, and I think someone someone like myself can't help to jump to to conclusions and um, and assume or imagine what what it would be. And I think uh, a lot of stories that come out uh, potentially have lots of elements of that. I know if um, if I had seen something, I wouldn't be making assumptions. So I think maybe that's why we're seeing um, stories that have more background to them than then would be reasonable to assume they would have. Um, but one yeah, story I that... Think also, I think also, too, sorry to interrupt you there, Byron, no, I think also, absolutely. too, we're seeing a very contaminated culture where this subject has been exploited from day one by the media, and we can't help all of us, especially living in Western culture. Mm. We don't really have a template for this phenomenon. Most Indigenous cultures do, our indigenous culture on this continent has an extraordinary template for this phenomena and feels very comfortable with it. We have reductionistic science. So it's a shock to even tackle these ideas. But what we do have, we have popular culture that for the driven reason of corporatocracy and capitalism that will exploit anything, it is completely amoral and doesn't give a damn. So then, you know, the template, the background noise is corrupting us 24-7 in terms of the way we're able to cut through and perceive the actual real scientific and collaborative data that's coming to us. And it's a difficult, it's a day-to-day war to balance those scales of justice against the noise that is there. I think one one interesting point um, or one interesting incident that I'd like to, to ask you about. I know you've spoken about this um, on TV, so uh, those listening um, should know that we have a celebrity on the line. Oh. Uh, what I'm talking about is the 2017 release of the US Navy. It was 2004. They released three films, and they released them through Tom DeLong's, believe it or not, to the Stars Academy. And there's an interesting thing, to think that someone from Blink... 182 could all of a sudden be the mouthpiece for the military-industrial complex. Maybe as a patsy. Maybe when it gets to the right time, they're going to pull the rug out from underneath Tom. 
But if you look at the people that have left the U.S. military, that have left the Central Intelligence Agency to work with Tom DeLong, that's enough to say there is genuinely something occurring there. So what we're looking at is three major pieces of footage, but the most extensive footage to be analysed, and with actual pilots that have come forward and made statements in the public arena, is the 2004 Nimitz footage which is quite extraordinary footage in itself because what you're looking at, you're looking at the most advanced infrared system, the FLU radar system. And if I can just digress here, mm-hmm. one of the greatest production designers, my background too is, is in cinema. I don't know if you know, I did the SBS movie show where Margaret and David went to the ABC. I was one of the hosts. There were three hosts, two ladies and myself. And I I have a background in cinema. And I was astounded to find that Douglas Trumbull, who was the production designer on 2001, who did the film Silent Running and Brainstorm with uh, Natalie Wood, and who's gone on now to create, he is working on creating virtual reality cinemas. He is right at the arc of technology in popular culture. He is absolutely fascinated in the subject. And he utilizes that exact military FLIR system to nightly film anomalies. And the amount of data. So if you punch in Douglas Trumbull, you'll be totally astounded at the amount of research he's done and the genuine aspect. And he finds those things on infrared. But what we're looking at from that footage is it is calibrated. It's come out of what is literally termed a military gun camera. And they've laid their sights on this object. And this object is doing things that are impossible. You cannot do really sharp right-angle turns with a human being in a cockpit. It'll be the end of you. There's something called G-force out there, and gravity will take you out. And these things are dropping within nanoseconds from really huge distances, hovering next to, you know, talk about a problem with national security when you've got, Objects like that, tracking planes, actually preempting their maneuvers and appearing in front of them, all over radar, all over line of sight. I mean, how much more data do you need? This is beyond peer review that you've got a reality. And then all of a sudden, boom, boom, the Navy states that they are our films and they're genuinely anomalies. They're not saying yeah. they're flying. They're not saying they're UFOs but they are saying they are completely anomalous and we don't know what they are. And if that's not a threat to national security, what is? And that's where I think the governments are far more aware than we will ever be in the civilian world because it is a threat to national security. And there in the 40s when it hit the mainstream, we were looking at the end of the Second World War, the amount of paranoia building up in the Cold War meant that there was no way that they were going to let this phenomena fall into the public domain for investigation. It appears to us from a civilian perspective it does, but in reality, that's why people out of the Central Intelligence Agency were sitting on the board of APRO. You know, that's why they were there. Yeah. Um, I have to say this. um, If if people haven't watched the videos, they need to watch the videos. The, The fact that there was a fighter pilot saying, I've never seen technology like this, gives you two options. One is the US government is working on technology that is absolutely beyond 
what we can comprehend as human technology or it's something else. We have to be very careful with that statement. It's one thing to actually know that we've, we've recorded and documented with the best trained witnesses in the world, something that's purely beyond our notion of where physics lies today. We must remember that all advances in technology are seeded from the military industrial complex in the Western very world. True. And we are looking at technology that is so old in comparison to where they are now in terms of innovation. You know, the state they have microwave ovens on, on the store shelves for sale in the 50s. We really didn't see them in Australia to the late 70s. So all that stuff is slowly seeded. The internet uh, came out of the military-industrial complex. God knows what their NBN 5G power is <laughs> over there in the States or at Pine Gap. It'd be yeah. way beyond the time it takes you and I to render something that we can put up from podcasts. So, but there has been statements over the years, you know, around those Groom Lake facilities. You've got Bob Lazar there. I did one of the first interviews for a pilot with Alex Perez, who gave us The Crow and iRobot and all those films, Dark City. And I did that in the 70s for Channel 10 in Australia. Uh, Not the 70s, in the 90s, I mean. And we interviewed Bob Lazar. And, you know, very hard to debunk Bob Lazar's story, very hard to verify Bob Lazar's story. But one thing there is, there's a payslip from uh, the the U.S. Naval Intelligence there, of which he worked with them for two weeks. Now, Bob Lazar's story is fairly wild, but you want to get to the truth of this. The way to get to the truth is Robert Bigelow, Bigelow Aerospace. Now, if you have a civilian encounter with an anomalous object, you're even a pilot, and you try and get in touch with the U.S. government, you will be redirected to Bigelow Aerospace. Now, Robert Bigelow is the man that creates the inflatable pods for the International Space Station. But he has had and has gone on the record publicly to say that generationally, his family has had major UFO experience from day one. Go up onto Google Maps and cite Bigelow Aerospace from Google Maps, and you'll find something very strange down there in Nevada where his huge company developing these pods exists, is that they have the half Whitley Streamer communion face as the logo of that company. And so a person that is literally a billionaire sitting on one of the most cutting-edge technological programs to do with our habitation in space is also where, and he was the person who purchased Skinwalker Ranch there as well, which is a whole other conundrum. Mm. But he, he is literally, you know, the person that has become, and I'm sure he's leaking all that data back to the U.S. government. In a sense, he's like a shrill out there. But, you know, there's a highly credentialed entrepreneur with a scientific background stating that the phenomena is real today in the 21st century. In relation relation to that, you've touched on um, the potential for uh, governments to be involved and, and to be shielding the public from this. A question that I have around the Navy release is why they didn't just delete the movies. I think the trouble is that, like, this phenomenon touches everyone. It can touch a five-star general and it can yep. touch someone on janitorial duties at your local school. Sure. 
and it, it has been leaking like a sieve since day one. I do a lecture up on my Patreon site, which I call Science Fiction, Flying Sources, and Consensus Reality. And I show every decade that there are either major TV or film machinations done by the US military to announce that the phenomena is real. I think they're perpetually testing the water to see how the psychological zeitgeist is for humanity to handle this before, you know, the chicken breaks out of the egg and we're all aware of the reality of it. And yeah. I think they've been doing that from day one. The trouble is when you practice to deceive, you've got a lot to go back over and time has really got lost on them. I mean, they've approached Disney in the 50s and said that they were going to dump all the data and give them footage. Evidently, Walt Keeble, just before he died, one of Disney's major animationists, went to a MOOF on the Mutual UFO Network and spoke about that fact. There was a gentleman called Robert Emmerdinger who did a documentary. It was the last documentary that Ron Serling who created, The Twilight Zone, narrated UFOs here and now past, present, and future. It goes under numerous names. They were told that they were going to get footage from the U.S. Air Force's AV lab of a landing at Holloman Air Force Base. And it was shot during um, the filming of the X-15 tests. Now, you're using literal cameras there that run through thousands of stills of images to capture these rocket tests, these high-speed tests. You couldn't get a better way of analyzing a genuine phenomenon. When it got to the midnight hour, that footage was pulled from them. But if you go up online on YouTube and watch that documentary, UFOs Past, Present, and Future, or UFO, I think it's Past, Present, and Future by Robert Emmerdinger, you'll actually see 10 seconds of the footage without a statement. At the end of it, they actually do a storyboarding because the footage was pulled at the very last minute from the production. And they're going, what if this happened in the past? What if this happened in the future? But I guess the best case of that is the Mercury, uh, the late great Mercury astronaut, Gordon Cooper, who said that he filmed at Edwards Air Force Base an object landing with one of these high-speed cameras. He went in the late 70s to the UN and presented documentary evidence to that effect that and many other cases. I mean, Edgar Mitchell, who has come forward, brought up Roswell as Apollo 13 astronaut, has stated a validity to this. If you start to look at these things in their singularity, they can be dismissed. Bring them all together, their totality is going to knock those scales of justice in the favour of a real phenomenon. So basically, if I can summarise, it's less that they... Um allowed the film um, through through their arm being twisted and more that they do a steady release to, to see whether people are accepting of the potential of a of, of something that that is out of this world now so, if, if we can, if, if we can uh, go off the evidence and we toured uh, UFOR toured probably the most predominant researcher of Roswell with 15 books up his sleeve, hundreds of documentaries. He was behind the HBO Roswell movie, Don Schmidt last year. I've got a live interview on my Patreon site with him as well in the archives. And, you know, he actually relates his story that um, 
you know, about the complications around Roswell. I think everyone feels like they've heard enough about Roswell, but Roswell is an astounding case and should be never totally dismissed. And I did the last interview on Triple J with Walter Holt, who was the the officer in charge of the press release. We must remember that the Air Force stated that they actually had an exotic object, a flying saucer in their head. They were the ones that said the phenomenon was real. We did it. They posed that question. Yet it'd be 18 hours after that they started to debunk that original press release, but they were the ones that stated it. And he said at that stage, they weren't aware that there were two major crash sites and they thought they'd covered up the evidence till a farmer who, a grazier, had rolled into town and started to hand out this exotic material to the radio station people, to the people in pubs. And that's when they went, okay, we need this press release to go out there that we've captured this object and we'll vacuum clean up. Looks like the cat's out of the bag. When they realized that it only got to a small amount of people in Roswell, I think that's when they decided it's time to actually, you know, pull back from this being a real statement. But what they did initially was they did a press conference and they stood up and said, we had taken this object. And you know what? 95% of the journalists there packed up laughing and walked out of the room. And I think because even at that stage, it was seen as absurd science fiction fantasy tilting at windmills. And I think it's that test of the zeitgeist. I think the government bodies, you know, this is a massive national security issue. If you were to say to your public that we want at least 25 to 30% of your tax money, possibly more, to go into the military to protect you, but we can't protect you from something that seems to be impinging on our airspace on a 24-hour basis, that may actually remove you from your bedroom at night, and we don't know whether it's going to bring you back or not, but mm. still keep paying us that taxpayer money. They're in a quandary. They're in a real troublesome spot. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. And this is just assumption. I can't be right about any of this because it's supposition. It is based on decades of research. But one thing I'm very familiar with is the machinations of exploitation in film and television. And it screams at me that they have been testing that zeitgeist from day one. Is the public at a point? And that's why it's so interesting that in the midst of this pandemic in 2020, that they come forward and literally state that is real, genuine footage. Something uh, that I think people are always interested um, in hearing about is recent sightings, what do you what do you think's the most recent credible sighting that you've seen and um or or of someone that you've spoken to that they've had a, uh, had an experience Well I think you know it's important for us at UFO Research New South Wales to not take away from the confidentiality of reports so I'm not mm-hmm. going to go into it specific with you, Byron, because, you know, again, one of the reasons why we do that is to make sure people aren't victims of exploitative media or they're not laughed at. But I can give you a generalization. And ever since February, in the midst of this growing chaos and anxiousness, we have been receiving a multiplicity of reports that run virtually this straight line from the nuclear basin down at the, uh, the bite there in Bass Strait 
right up through Victoria, right up New South Wales into Queensland, and people seeing a multiplicity of objects all flying in formation. They're glowing, luminescent, white circular balls. They're at a certain distance. They could be dismissed for like an Elon Musk project in terms of satellite and broadband transmission. But the interesting thing is they stop, start, go backwards, move out of formation. They're seeing up to 20, 25 of these objects in a row. And I actually had an experience myself years ago with virtually the same uh, objects when I was uh, living in Haberfield here in Sydney. And I was getting ready to do a night shift where I drove a van for the Sydney City Mission picking up intoxicated people and drug-affected people off the streets. And it was about 9 o'clock at night. I was standing with a very sceptical person on my porch, and I saw these white objects go over the roof. They stopped. They seemed to pull light out in front of them, like, oddly enough, headlights that illuminated very high cloud cover that I couldn't witness under these lights came out. Then they went backwards. It's extremely, virtually identical to what I saw there in the 90s, and I must have received well over a hundred of those reports over the last six months. For people who may not be in Australia, um, the bite all the way up New South Wales—that's a huge amount of space. That's—they're um... uh, not taking too long a travel time to travel. They're moving quite rapidly, but they seem to be traversing that in a very direct, direct line. And it's surprising—I'll get phone calls late at night, and bang, away you go. Another interesting case up in Lightning Ridge of a massive flat-shaped rectangular object that was traversing a barn. It was literally like six foot off the ground. I'm not going to go into details about that case, but uh, the, the, the gentleman witnessing it found me very traumatized and actually had shot about four rounds out of his shotgun into it. And I said, I hope there you haven't got neighbours close to that property. And what happened when you shot at it? And basically what happened is it, it just disappeared in front of his eyes. One of the things to do with rural Australia, as I was saying before, we have extremely pragmatic, tenacious individuals that are working extremely in rough land. Now, I went to investigate the Knowles case uh, that was there in January 1988, where a family of four was suspected to have been lifted off the air highway in Mudrabilla, just on the south and western Australian border there. When, when I got out there, I mean, it was dismissed, you know, on, on a few reports, some of them evidently with a bit of scientific credentials, that they'd hit a cattle ramp. I'm going to tell you uh, the property that this occurred directly out in the front of the Mandrabilla homestead is literally a million acres of the roughest, toughest land you'll ever see. And they would not be able to graze cattle there. It is classic <laughs> National Geographic's cracked soil. Yeah. There was no cattle. Another problem they've got there too is that the governor in the 1800s said, you can deal with your indigenous problem any way you want. And they strictened half the background soil. And that strict need is still in the soil. So there are not grazing animals there. It is virtually impossible. Yeah. There was no frigging cattle ramp. And, you know, you literally have to get in the car and drive for thousands of miles to actually go, 
Well, that piece of media that I wouldn't have believed till I actually got here physically is completely wrong. And mm. it is not right at all. And this people's story has been dismissed way too easily. And then you speak to other truck drivers out there and they're seeing this phenomenon perpetually. So, I mean, you know, this thing does affect people's lives. It affects it in an incredible way. It's devastating. But, you know, the ridicule attached to it even does more trouble. I think that's uh, it's something that uh, that I appreciate in 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 our chat so far is is the way that you are able to link it back to the the person's well-being and and what that means for them whether you're a believer or not that you have to keep reminding yourself that you're speaking to people you're not just speaking to a witness and you know people uh, approach things differently depending on what's happened in their life where they've been their perception we we would never be this critical of someone else's theology or religious beliefs Absolutely. Something like this, we feel like we can be because it's been so castigated in in popular culture. A couple of times you've uh, mentioned that we can't assume or uh, can't infer um, things, but the uh, the creative writer in me um, can't help but do that. Um, and one thing that I'm that I'm really curious about, with particularly with people who have spoken to others who have experienced these beings and um, and had you know more close encounters, is what do you think they're physically like? Because if I think, you know, if you're an astronaut, you go into space for six months, the the changes it makes on your body is quite profound. What are these creatures like who we make, again, we make the assumption that they're traveling across the, uni- the universe. Uh, but what do you think they're physically like? What they look like and, and um, kind of what's their makeup? That's a really difficult question. And some other researchers <laughs> might be able to jump on that really quickly. Uh, you know, some of the reports are as individual as the people reporting them. I mean, that great case that's come back into the public domain at a Pascagoula there in the U.S. with Calvin and Hickson and Calvin Parker. You know, they actually thought they saw what was like, acted like a robot, but looked like it was covered in rhinosaurus skin. I think let's go to what seems to be the cliche and what's held in the public's mind, especially in terms of the exploitation of media, and that is the communion grey alien, which doesn't, you know, nine times out of ten. And I've had an intimate chat with Travis Walton, who was uh, the study um, Fire in the Sky, the Tracy Tormey film. He was he had that case in Snowflake, Arizona in 1978, where he was abducted and disappeared for five days. The rest of his working crew, and they were logmen in in a woodland area in Snowflake, they were up for his death, his murder. And uh, bang, he appeared five days later. And that is an extraordinary case. It's virtually an airtime case before any sort of regression was brought in, um, in terms of like this really positive, uh, effective, tactile proof for the abduction scenario very early in the piece. Betty and Barney Hill are, are as well an incredible case from the early 60s. The Interrupted Journey by Fuller, the book was written. But uh, and, and Travis Walton spoke to me about this. He saw two beings, and I go off what Travis says because I think Travis is it's pragmatic and, and is an astoundingly honest human being as much as uh, Australians living in the outback are. So let's go to Travis's story. Yeah. A 20 minutes very clear recall 
of that many day experience, only 20 minutes. But in that 20 minutes, he found himself again on the ubiquitous uh, operating table or the bed or whatever it was. And he had the small beings scurrying around him. He saw no sexual organs, even though these beings, and some of them had, I think Betty Hill and Barney actually saw them wearing some sort of very tight-fitting blue overalls, but uh, he saw them what looked like their skin, and no sexual organs, very small mouth, virtually no ears, if ears at all. And he had a feeling that they were actually some sort of genetically created drone that, that uh, had been put out there and, and were learning in some way how to do this analysis and then the other thing that he saw uh, later on in that experience of breaking away from these smaller creatures, the Whitley Streamer type communion aliens, was the classic seen many times as well consistently was the six foot, seven foot, blue eyed, Nordic, humanoid looking creature. Mm. Which makes me wonder sometimes if the phenomena we're looking at may have something to do, it might even be ourselves. And I just don't know where to go with that statement. I don't want to get into time travel or anything like that, but I get a feeling it's incredibly related to us. And, you know, this might be as common as the air we breathe. My next question um, is around UFO uh, movies and TV shows and and, uh, what would be your favorite or the or the one that you go to most often oh that's a really difficult question and i don't like favorite <laughs> the next thing i find will come in the door might truly excite me how about we yeah, go to a, uh, a very recent scholar robbie yeah. graham are you aware of robbie graham out of britain he has written a hypothesis on whether there's a reality two governmental bodies throughout the world affecting the screenwriting and the adaptation of these stories to feature films and the small screen. That book is called Silver Screen Sources. It, it, his credentials are impeccable and he's a really balanced researcher and writer. And anyone interested in the subject matter, there's a few other books that have touched on it, but nowhere near the research he's done. Uh, He brings up a TV series in the late 90s out of the US called Dark Skies. Do you remember that at all? Dark Skies sort of rewrote conspiratorial history. In the midst of that, the people producing that show and creating it were approached by US naval intelligence and told that they couldn't go any further with the subject matter till every script was greenlit by the Central Intelligence Agency. That's just one example of many examples. I believe even The Rock in Return to Witch Mountain, mm. uh, they, the CIA came in and demanded that they write the alien hieroglyphs. No one else was going to do that. They were going to write them. Now, why they have to do that, <laughs> I've got no idea. This can go back to incredible researchers. One of them at the birth of them out of the U.S. Air Force is Donald Kehoe. Major Donald Kehoe. And in 1958, you can actually witness some of the noise of this online with a gentleman 
on YouTube called Mike Wallace. I think it's a 1958 program where he discusses the plug being pulled on information he was speaking about directly on live television. They have altered television programs from day one. But let's just go back to the 70s. After Leonard Nimoy, Spock left uh, Star Trek, the TV series, I think it did three seasons, he uh, was involved in a documentary series that lasted for six called In Search Of. They were 22-minute television, half-an-hour documentaries on all sorts of anomalies. They actually did a UFO uh, program on UFOs in Australia that was very thorough. It was in that program, prior to Stanton Freeman, that Matt Brazel came out for the first, Jesse Marcel, I mean, I'm, excuse me there, I'm getting confused between the rancher and the person employed by the Roswell Army Field to pick up the, the debris from Mac Brazel, the rancher, and that was Jesse Marcel. Now, Jesse Marcel came out on that TV show for the very first time, 1947, 1978, many decades there had traversed no one was really aware of the Roswell incident. He was dying of emphysema and felt that he had to go on the record to state what he handled was truly anomalous objects. And here in lies the rub. They are going in there and they are affecting mainstream media big time. They are going over it. They are supervising scripts. But at the same time, mainstream media has the money. And at the moment, I've been discussing with a few major film companies, and I don't know if it'll happen, fingers crossed, because I've lost all work as an entertainer since February, and they want to come out here and shoot some footage on cases in Australia with some high-credential people. If there is going to be a breakthrough, it's the money brought from these huge service providers that are doing streaming services like Netflix or documentary filmmakers out there. And now we should consider the fact that an incredible documentary has been completed and was to go up for theatrical release around this time in the US. May not get that release, but it definitely will be streaming online soon that all of us have to watch. It's by James Fox, who did Out of the Blue, and I Know What I Saw. They are the two most important documentaries in the field in which science is brought to bear on this phenomenon, very difficult with anyone for a sceptical eye to walk away from both those documentaries. But their latest documentary is called Phenomenon, and it is going up online very soon. You can watch an extraordinary trailer on that on YouTube. It could be Phenomena, actually. Just check, Phenomena or Phenomena. James Fox and Tracy Torbay. Tracy Torbay, who's been behind a lot of ufological productions and is the son of the jazz singer Mel Torbay, who they called the Velvet Fog in the 50s. And his dad actually had a UFO encounter like John Lennon did in New York City. So these things can happen in the wilderness. They can happen in an abundant CBD. One last question is, What's the one question that you wish you were asked when people are talking to you about UFOs? Now, that's a really difficult one. I think, you know what, that is extremely difficult because there's many, many questions. I wish, you know what I wish, and it's not so much Mm. a question. I wish people would not assume things. They would not 
spend so little time looking at the data and go and investigate the data. Today, with the access of the internet, we need only spend a couple of hours to realize that this is a genuine phenomenon. There is so much data available. I think that um, the one question I'd like to be asked is, you know, how do people integrate these experiences into their everyday lives? And the answer to that is with much difficulty, and that's why we need to remove the ridicule from it. And that we should all have a, a much broader sense of this beautiful, yet extraordinarily great mystery that the human being is. And in many ways, we're not up to speed in medicine or science to understand the environment that's around us, to understand our physiology. They still don't understand what dreams are. Neurologists are just beginning to realize that human consciousness may not even exist in the organ we call the brain and could be exist outside of the body. I mean, how esoteric is that concept? But it's no more esoteric than quantum computing. So I just want people to have a much more open mind and realize the mystery is not something to be afraid of. It's something to be embraced. And in many ways, from an atomic perspective, there's nothing that can be taken away, nothing that can be given back. Our atomic structure has remained the same from day one. And in many ways, if we go back to the way that we look at scientific reductionism, and that there was a big bang at one stage and it was all white light. We are all connected together in that atomic perspective. And we literally are the universe, the cosmos, the furthest reaches of deep space, philosophically pondering this entire conundrum. Thank you for joining me on this special interview episode. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jamie. I really enjoyed hearing not only about his experience in the UFO world, but also how this influences his thoughts through life, a fascinating conversation and man. A big thank you to Jamie Leonardo for his time. I hope to have more conversations in the future, maybe even in person. To catch all the future episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcasting app, Leave a rating for the show to grow our obsessive community. Follow the socials and join your fellow obsessives. Links in the show notes. Written, produced and edited by Byron Gatt for Pinchicus Media. Sound designed by Lillian Fred. They designed the barking, I edited out. Check out the full credits in the show notes and how to get in touch. Theme music by mixit.co.